Al Jazeera Podcasts. After more than 100 days of war, Palestinians in Gaza are exhausted. And that includes Al Jazeera journalist Madam Humaid. I'm struggling to find the basic needs for my children, especially the baby. We're not doing well. This is very difficult. And people outside Gaza should act. She's among the hundreds of thousands of displaced Palestinians in southern Gaza. Actually, I'm, I'm desperate and I cannot appeal anyone because I'm, I lost my trust in the world and no one wants to do anything for us. The ceasefire Palestinians are calling for is still up in the air. It's pending a deal between Hamas and Israel. Negotiators have met in Paris to discuss a deal between Israel and Hamas that could see hostages released and an extended ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. The death toll in Gaza now exceeds 26,000. As officials negotiate a deal, how long can Palestinians in Gaza wait? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. All eyes were on Paris last weekend, where spy chiefs from the U.S., Israel, and Egypt met with Qatari officials. They were there for intelligence talks as part of efforts to broker a captives-for-prisoners exchange and truce between Hamas and Israel. Given the participants, it's a meeting we don't know a lot about, but... If you listen to everybody that was there, I think there is a consensus that progress has been made. Al Jazeera senior correspondent Huda Abdelhamid was reporting from Tel Aviv as the Paris meeting took place. Has a deal been reached? Not yet. Could things collapse? Everything is possible. But at the moment, we know that the deal and the details of that deal that were agreed upon in Paris were related to Hamas. Now, the details, mostly, I would say, come from leaks made by the Israeli prime minister's office or other Israeli senior politicians to the Israeli media. And we heard of that before the Paris meeting. The deal Hoda is talking about is a framework for the negotiations between Israel and Hamas. So it would be a ceasefire that would be between a month to two months. During that ceasefire, there will be an exchange of Captives held by Hamas versus Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jails. A bit similar to what happened back in November 2023, but at a larger scale and over a longer period of time. On the second day of the temporary ceasefire, Hamas released 13 Israeli captives and four Thai nationals. In exchange, the Israelis released 39 Palestinian women and children from their jails. So you'd have this staggered exchange, starting with women and children held by Hamas, then the elderly, and then uh, the rest of the captives, including the uh, dead bodies that Hamas holds. In exchange, hundreds of Palestinian prisoners, political prisoners, should be released. But there are a lot of sticking points between the two parties. Here's Hamas political bureau member Mohammed Nazal speaking to Al Jazeera as he laid out the movement's demands on Tuesday. 
we want a permanent ceasefire. Secondly, we want withdraw Israeli withdrawal from Gaza Strip. Without Israeli withdrawal, we can't also accept this new deal or new proposal. Thirdly, we want to allow the humanitarian aid enter Gaza Strip because our people, they are suffering. But Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is adamant that the war should continue. The Prime Minister said that the country was at war and that the stated aim and goal of this war is to completely destroy Hamas capability in Gaza and make sure that Hamas never rules Gaza again. On Sunday, Netanyahu's office described the Paris meetings as constructive, adding that there are still significant gaps. But by Tuesday, he was saying something different at an academy in an illegal Israeli settlement in the occupied West Bank. We will not withdraw the army from the Gaza Strip, and we will not release thousands of terrorists. None of this will happen. What will happen? Total victory. He has the backing of his people. A a recent survey by the Tel Aviv University showed that 94% of Israeli Jews think that Israel has used the right amount of force in Gaza. And about 75% of those think that the number of civilian casualties is legitimate because Israel has to achieve its goals. So he knows he has that support. But on the international level, he has less support because there is pressure from Washington, from Western powers, from Saudi Arabia, from Egypt, from Qatar, to talk about the day after, to restart the political track, to bring about eventually a two-state solution that will give Palestinians the right to self-determination. And that is something the Israelis will not accept at any stage, and they're dead set against it. If you're having difficulty parsing how likely a deal is, you're not alone. The momentum from these talks has been going up and down. Netanyahu's speech at the settlement was on Tuesday. But on Monday, Qatar, a key mediator, struck a more hopeful tone. There was a clear demand of the permanent ceasefire ahead of the negotiations, which I believe... Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdurrahman Athani said there had been good progress in ceasefire talks. Here he is at an event at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. We moved from that place to a place where it has potentially might lead to a ceasefire permanently in the future. And this is what we are all aiming for, because we've seen also the suffering of the people in Gaza. Uh, we cannot uh, say... Huda has been covering all of these ups and downs. That includes the battles erupting within the negotiations, like this one over a piece of leaked audio. The voice you hear is said to be a Prime Minister Netanyahu calling Qatar's role as a mediator problematic. Huda was in Tel Aviv when the recording was aired on Israeli TV. She told us how that played out within Israel. Well, let's just start by 
saying that it was a purposely leaked audio. It later emerged that that was actually orchestrated by his office. It angered Qatar, which issued quite a stern statement, pointing the finger at the prime minister himself and telling him that he was certainly not helping the situation and reminding the prime minister that such acts could even put the Israeli captives in a more difficult situation because they could stall the talks. But that was not something the prime minister did by mistake. He is a political calculator. And by leaking that, you divert the attention from the ongoing war and the increasing toll it's having on the soldiers and keeping that drum of war in the country. But how long can the displaced and starved people of Gaza wait before a ceasefire is reached? That's after the break. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. There's been a worldwide push for a ceasefire in Gaza. And for many Palestinians, a case at the International Court of Justice seemed like it might offer that hope. South Africa wants the UN's top legal body, the International Court of Justice, to order an immediate ceasefire in a case being brought under the Genocide Convention. But the ICJ didn't order a ceasefire. Instead, last Friday, the court ordered Israel to prevent acts of genocide against Palestinians and do more to help civilians. It was a blow to the hopes of many Palestinians in Gaza. Al Jazeera journalist Madame Humaid is sheltering with 80 other relatives in southern Gaza. She spoke last week to people glued to the radio, waiting for the court's decision. I headed to the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Hospital in Gaza, in Indir Balahir, and people were wearing their uh, earphones, uh, listening to the radio that was airing the, the court session. And just I spotted some of those people uh, in order to interview them. And I was just, you know, asking one question. Hello, how are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, Madam says their conditions are dire. They're living in tents, facing rain and cold weather. As the ICJ was meeting on Friday, ambulances were bringing the injured to the hospital where she was reporting. She asked people who were sheltering there what they were expecting from the ruling. Some of them said that I'm a little bit optimistic. I have a glimmer of hope that they would rule for a ceasefire. But that changed after the verdict was announced. They were just disappointed, frustrated upon hearing the final ruling allowing more aid uh, into the Gaza Strip and just asking Israel to make sure not to target civilians. One of the interviewees, uh, he was just laughing. 
He was just laughing mockingly, like, this is weird. I can't imagine, like, one who's living such conditions and hearing uh, nothing about ceasing fire, nothing about stopping the war in Gaza, nothing about putting an end to their suffering. Many of them told me that we already lost the trust in, in the international community that they would act or do anything for us. And no one will deter Israel. Israel has the green light to continue the killing of people. While Israel discusses the terms and conditions of a ceasefire, their actions on the ground tell a different story. Israeli media has reported on a military plan to create a so-called buffer zone under the pretext of preventing attackers from reaching Israeli communities near Gaza. Here's Hoda talking about what that would mean for people in Gaza. The buffer zone, I think at this stage, they probably already destroyed somewhere near 1,000 to 1,500 buildings along all that border area with southern Israel. The total number of buildings to be destroyed is 2,800. So you can imagine how many families would lose their livelihood. But can I tell you that before the war, there was already a buffer zone because at each war, that security cordon gets wider and wider. And I think before the war, it was a few hundred meters. And anyone who crossed into that few hundred meters would get immediately shot by the Israeli snipers who were on the other side of the fence. So it's just extending something it has been doing for a long time, which means land grab. It's pushing the Palestinians into a smaller corner in Gaza. I mean, we keep on saying what will be next for Gaza as if an already horrible and awful and nightmarish situation can become even worse. And actually, it does on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, and it will continue. In the middle of this dim reality, some Palestinians in Gaza still have hope. Like two of the people Madam spoke to recently. The situation is catastrophic. Everybody is sick because of the cold and the rain. We live, eat, and sleep near the fire out in the open. I'm waiting for the politicians to say there is a truth so that we can go to our homes. I have hope. God willing. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Siri Al-Khalili and Khalid Sultan, with Nagin Oliayi, Chloe Kaylee, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, David Enders, Amy Walters, Sonia Bagad, Zaina Badr, Farnisa Kampana, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Joe Plord mixed this episode. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.